Job is weird. The book of Job, the 18th piece of the Christian Bible, is not normal. If we're honest with ourselves, we would have to admit it creeps us out just a bit. If it were a person, we might be tempted to look at it and say to ourselves, he's just not right in the head. If the Bible is the senior prom, Job's the dork in the corner with the taped up glasses. And because it's so odd, because it violates so many of our preconceived notions, because it's just so weird, we might be tempted to avert our gaze and walk on by. This is not the kind of company we want others to see we keep. But, like the proverbial bad penny, it keeps coming back. I mean, there's the section where that strange conversation between God and Satan takes place. What's up with that? Then there's the long part where Job and his friends seem really ticked off at each other. What were they angry about again? They go after it for an awfully long time. And God seems so mean. Is that what I should expect from him? Isn't there another section of the Bible, wait, here it is, where it says he loves us so much he was willing to give up his son for us? And before you know it, we've got the book open, we're flipping through the pages, and we're hooked. Job is weird, but there's got to be some explanation. Maybe if we look carefully at just why Job is weird, it would help. There are many reasons. First, Job was weird in its own time. The book of Job was written at roughly the same time as Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, and the two types of storytelling couldn't be more different. Homer and his contemporaries had come to believe deep in their bones that the day-to-day toils of life here on earth and the glories enjoyed in the heavenly realms were totally separate. Like water and oil, they just couldn't mix. And this separation was reflected in the kind of stories they liked to tell. Heroes, people that went about fighting great wars and interacting with demons and angels, were always part of the ruling class, a set of people that were seen as superior to your everyday cobbler or farmer. Normal folk found their place in comedies instead. You can see this in Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey. Its hero, Odysseus, was king of Ithaca, and because of his position was the type of person who would be noticed by Zeus. Fight with the Cyclops, and get advice from Circe, the daughter of the sun god Helios. Pretty impressive, huh? On the other hand, the hero of Job, the one that fights the titanic fight, is one barely different than you and me. He had a house and a family. He owned land and animals and lived comfortably. Job was no king, but somehow, in direct contrast to the prevailing tastes, surely to the deep shock of any person of the time who took the time to read the book, was the central character in a deeply serious story. Job, by being normal, was weird. Job was also weird in relation to the rest of the Bible. There are things you see in this book that you see nowhere else. For example, early on in the story, we are allowed to eavesdrop on what is perhaps the strangest conversation in all of Scripture, if not also in all of history. God and Satan partaking in what seems for all the world like small talk. So here's the deal. God's just chilling, checking out the sons of God, and Satan walks by. Hey Satan, how's it hanging? What you been up to? Working hard or hardly working? And Satan replies, 
Just hanging. Nothing much, really. Man, that Job guy, have you checked him out? Cool dude, huh? And so it begins. Here's another way Job is weird in relation to the rest of the Bible. Folks throughout the ages, for the sake of clarity, have ordered the books of Christian scripture into different sections. For example, certain books, one that relate the goings-on of people in past times, are gathered under the category of history. Others that describe events that will happen in the future are labeled as prophetic. The book of Job has generally been considered to be part of a set of books known as wisdom literature. The purpose of these books is, as described at the beginning of one of them, Proverbs, to know wisdom and instruction, thus the label. But Job is weird. After reading it, you wouldn't be too much at fault to wonder, where exactly is the wisdom in this book? Let me explain what I mean. When we come at a book of the Bible, or any book for that matter, it can be helpful to break the book into logical sections. So let's do that. First, we can look at the overall emphasis of the book. Try to see if there are any overarching tendencies. By my rather rough estimate, I can break the book into two large sections. Action sections and talking sections. If we look at the book in this way, something amazing comes to light. By my rough account, around 92% of Job is just people sitting around talking. Makes you worry, doesn't it? This book might be boring. Hang in there, though. I promise fireworks like you've never seen before. We have a good way of determining what parts of the book are wise and which parts aren't. God tells us. We'll see that as we try to grasp what Job is saying to us. We can oftentimes rely on what I call the divine commentary, either God or the narrator telling us what is good and wise and what is not. And for our current purpose, we have two comments from God that shed light on many of the things that are said in the book. One is from Job 38.2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? No beating around the bush here. God with these words labels Job's words as just plain wrong, no argument allowed. And in a similar manner, in 42.8, God lets us know what he thinks about what Job's friends have been saying. You have not spoken of me what is right. And if we look at the overall book and split it into parts that are wise and parts that are not, this so-called wisdom book is about 15% wisdom and 85% pure foolishness. Let that fact roll around in your mind for a second. We believe the books of the Bible are the Word of God and meant for instruction. If that is so, how can a book so full of foolish words be useful for our instruction? Spoiler alert, it is useful. We'll be looking into this as the study progresses. But for now, off the top of your head, what do you think? What's your best guess as to why the Holy Spirit provides foolishness for our instruction? So, if Job is weird, is it also real? Could something so odd, so bizarre as to seem like the wildest of fantasies, be a reflection of actual historical events? Because if it is, we will be forced to some fascinating, and potentially frightening, conclusions. So be forewarned, if Job is real, things might get weird.
Ready to fall down that rabbit hole? If so, let's start by looking closely at some of the evidence, both pro and con. First, the writer gives us no direct indication that this book is fictional. If it were, we might expect to see lines like, Once upon a time, or In a galaxy far, far away. Something to indicate that what we're reading is from someone's imagination. A set of writings like the Bible that, if it's ever less than honest, would fail us miserably, would certainly give us some clue, right? It doesn't, so that suggests it's true to reality. Second, the actions depicted in the book are incredibly detailed and realistic. I think you would be hard-pressed to find another written story that so accurately reflects our world as this one. We see people in all their ragged glory. No hero here. No iconic good guys. No irredeemable bad guys. Just guys. Sometimes doing good, sometimes failing miserably just like me and you. But most importantly, other parts of the Bible take for granted Job was just as real as other folks. Check out the section around Ezekiel 14.12. God himself is quoted as saying, Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, here God, who should know, is clearly lumping Job in with two other men who we are sure actually existed. Therefore, at least God thinks Job is real. We might be wise to agree. Okay, but on the con side, all the dialogue in the book is written in a form of poetry. Surely not the way people really talk. And man, that weird coffee clash including God and Satan is so strange. I will admit, I don't have an answer for the poetry. Someday I might, though, and one of the benefits of this study being online is that I can change my mind as I come to fuller and better conclusions. I can revise my stuff and let you know. But for now, I'll go with the preponderance of evidence and move forward assuming Job and the events described within are historically factual. And if that is so, if Job is weird and true, yikes, we've got problems. So if the book of Job describes events that actually happen to real people, we're forced to face a problem that, I would suggest, is humanly impossible to overcome. There are parts of the story that are tough to stomach, impossible to look at directly. As we know, we can't stare directly into the sun. In the same way, parts of Job can't be studied, even if we bring all the resources of our souls to bear. A strange statement, I know. I'm saying these words today, inviting you into a careful study of the book of Job, and at the same time saying it's humanly impossible. Here's the problem. The God we see depicted in Job isn't exactly what we might expect. Everybody knows God is kind, right? Do we see that here? Well, gee, I mean, not exactly. God is gentle, right? Well, maybe in other circumstances, but here we see a God that is a little more, well, severe. And it's hard to use a softer description when we look at the way God interacts with Job. At the beginning of the book, he seems to goad Satan into bringing Job to harm. God says, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. 
1.8. Okay, say you're Satan, and someone says to you, Hey, I know this guy who doesn't like you very much. He's such a great guy. You might feel a little, perhaps, hurt, ticked off, challenged, unable to do anything but blurt out the classic all-time comeback. Oh, yeah? I'll show you, God. Just let me at him. And then, strangely, God doesn't stop Satan, but allows him to work Job over. He takes his property, causes members of his family to die tragically, and ruins his health, leaving Job bereft of any earthly comfort whatsoever. And finally, terrifyingly, we read this at the end of the book. Job's friends consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. 42.11 Satan was perhaps the hitman, but God himself makes a point of letting us know that the tremendous suffering visited upon Job was, in the final analysis, caused intentionally by him. The God we see here is not a gentle God. This is not a sweet God a God that carefully guides us through life, warning us of bumps in the road, shepherding us into green pastures. Instead, we're smacked straight between the eyes with a God we would never expect, a God so frightening we could never, even with all the resources of the human heart, bring ourselves to contemplate. In the face of such a God, who can stand? Humanly speaking, no one. But the book of Job, being the great work that it is, doesn't leave us on our own. It provides a way to stare directly into the heart of its difficult passages, work them around in our minds and hearts, and come out unscathed. In fact, into a superior position. In the same way that Job went through great difficulties and came to benefit in ways he could never imagine, so can the careful, courageous person who studies his story. Is such a world even imaginable? One that even the most terrible tragedies work their way around somehow, unimaginably, into outcomes of unbelievable joy? Can you imagine an end to the story where the blessings Job receives are far superior to the suffering he goes through? Let me assure you, that is how the story ends. And fascinatingly, that is also the solution to our problem. The book of Job is a time machine that allows us to move backwards and forwards in time at will. We can find the courage we need to directly interact with the beginning of this story by doing a little time travel, zipping forward across the temporal plane, and watching how the story ends. So how does this story end? How are the people involved different at the end than they were at the beginning? Job even though he, at the beginning of the story, is described as blameless and someone who was fearing God and turning away from evil, 1-1. At the end, his position has vastly improved. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, 42-5. Earlier, Job admits he hadn't really known God, only heard of him. But by the end of the story, he has actually seen him come face to face with the creator of the universe. Quite a blessing. 
But, believe it or not, something even better has occurred through the events of the story. In the last chapter, God speaks to one of Job's friends, Eliphaz. My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. 42.7 Well, that's not good. In fact, I can't think of a worse position for a human being to be in. If God is against you, all is lost. Except it's not. God goes on to tell the end of the friend's story. I will accept Job, so that I may not do with you according to your folly. God has somehow, despite what the friends deserved, found a way for them to get back into his good graces. They behaved badly, very badly. We'll see exactly how later. But God has found a way to make the results of that behavior go away, vanish into thin air as if it had never happened. God loves Job and has become an intimate acquaintance. God loves the friends and has healed their relationship with him also. How can a story that starts so horribly end so gloriously, that starts with anger and arrogance and pain, end with peace and unimaginable joy? Have you ever seen such a thing? Could it even be possible? The book of Job tells us it's possible. And if it's possible for Job, it's possible for you.